1: Welcome to episode 290 with my guest, Maddie. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Metal Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that's got to count for something. The website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, Go to the website, uh, metalpod.com. There's all kinds of things. You can fill out a survey anonymously, and maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Uh, Even if we don't read it out loud on the show, um, it it can help people browsing the surveys um, feel less alone about themselves. Uh, We can learn more about people in general, more about you and your your issues or your story. Um, so, and sometimes it can be really cathartic for the the person that fills the the survey out. And many times, uh, somebody has said as they're filling out the survey that um, uh, they're having an epiphany or you know something that was blocked for a long time, uh, feelings that were blocked are now kind of uh, flowing through them. It's either that or mucus. I get those two. I get important events and mucus confused which makes for some really awkward visits uh, to the doctor (laughs) oh there are days when it is so hard to be yourself (laughs) i i should warn you i'm uh, a little slap happy punch drunk whatever you want to call it it's uh way past my uh the time that I normally do the the podcast. I normally get to it uh, around I don't know, nine thirty or ten at night. And it's now about one in the morning. It's just been a, a kind of a crazy day of you know those days when you're like, oh, okay, I'm definitely gonna get that errand done, and then you realize that to even start that errand, there's another errand that you need to do for that to happen. So you go do that one and then you realize oh, to do that one, I need to do this other thing first. And so what was just going to be one errand today turned into basically an entire day of just uh, doing things that, uh, that I don't want to do. And I know everybody else has a life that is filled with those kind of days. But let's talk about me. Anyway, um couple of things I want to mention uh, don't forget about LA Podfest it's coming up September 23rd through the 25th and I'll be doing a live version of this podcast guest still to be announced uh, Sunday night September 25th and uh, it's here in LA but you can also pay to uh, watch it live or um, to have access to uh, the 30-day archive of not only it but all the other shows that are there and there's too many to list but it's uh, it's a great lineup of uh, podcast recording live, and tickets are twenty five dollars. Um, I think almost all of the in person passes, weekend passes, have been sold. There might be a few left, um, but obviously you can um, still purchase uh, to watch on your computer or your TV or whatever, whatever device. Um, and those tickets are twenty five dollars, and if you use the offer code Happy. Um, you'll get $5 off and I get some money from it which goes towards the show and that goes towards me and then I can buy a better hair product and wear a pompadour because I think that's going to be the, the game changer for my mental health is taller hair I can't believe that I've overlooked it all of my life and I, I, I think that's it Have you ever seen a sad-looking person with a pompadour? No, they're always driving a classic car. They got on some cool uh, leather coat. Uh, They're standing on top of their base. Everybody's loving them. You think I'm crazy. Actually, I am crazy, but I also happen to be right about the pompadours. (laughs) Let me just do a blanket apology for all of... The comedy that is about to ensue, or attempts thereof. You know, I'm I'm contributing really to the hack comedy uh, industrial complex, and a lot of people think the military industrial complex is uh, one of the bigger obstacles towards our uh, pure democracy. But it's really the hack comedy industrial complex. Let there's a chopper coming. Do you hear that? They're coming to get me. Oh. Here's an update. Um, a Twitterer uh, listener tweeted a rough sketch of Herbert. And so we are collaborating now on coming up with a, a Herbert for President T-shirt. and uh, it's uh, let's put it this way, his butthole will definitely be addressed and be central to that to the t-shirt. So I'll let you know when we when we finish the design. All right, let's get to some surveys. This is oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention: uh, this interview with Maddie um, was recorded. I want to say about a year ago, and um, I think there was something in there where I was still struggling uh, with depression when we recorded that. And that is not that is not the case, as those of you that have been listening every week know that. Um, I have made a big turnaround and still feeling really good. Okay. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, Are We There Yet? And she writes, uh, she has depression and anxiety in a snapshot from her life. Uh, I spend most of my day lying in bed, perusing the internet, both utterly terrified because of all the tasks I have yet to do and completely unmotivated to do them. Man, did that ring some bells for the rest of us. Uh, Kira writes about her anxiety, submitting an answer to this, then worrying it will be read on the air and people will know it's me. (laughs) Thank you for that. Uh, the Smiths, uh, writes about, uh, his depression and codependency. Uh, I'm sitting with my friends, forcing a smile and laugh and wondering the whole time whether they can tell I tried to kill myself a week ago. And he's a teenager and, uh, sending you some love, buddy. I um, I hope you talk to somebody. I hope you don't try to keep all of that trapped inside. Uh, this is another teenager. She calls herself uh, Hitler's evil twin, and uh, her issue is anorexia. And she writes, um, eating out of the rubbish bin because I've deserved nothing more than the shamefully large amount of calories in someone else's pizza crust. And then a snapshot from her life. Pissing my pants at the beach because the toilets are too far away for my emaciated body to hike to and the ocean is too cold for my already shivering body to swim in. I might have literally just peed myself, boys, but I'm still hot, right? Oh, man, that is such an insidious, insidious illness. Sending you some love. Ah... Uh, local talent writes about his depression i feel like i'm being punished for being a horrible person but i've never done anything to anyone about his alcoholism i drink too much kind of funny when i hear someone talk about drinking too much and when they say how much they drink i think oh that's how i warm up before shit gets serious Uh, and a snapshot from his life during the winter my ex-girlfriend told me she was trying to organize a sledding trip with another couple my immediate thought was how could you do this to me I fear, that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone why hypervigilant I should try to do something
0: I hate my kids seeing me like that I just imagine killing people I woke up with rats in my hair
1: they warp reality am I
0: losing myself or am I becoming myself I go back to bed hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house I was able to get myself out of Scientology I put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old they you're just garbage moving from one person's house
1: And I've always been really um, moved by your recovery, and um, I even mentioned you actually—not uh, by name, but I—Maddie I, is a pseudonym—and I mentioned you in one of the episodes a while back. And uh, I was so struck by the thing that you that you had mentioned in in our support group um, was that. Well, tell me, tell me what okay. the thing was that that.
0: So I, I used to isolate a lot. So one of the things that stopped me from isolating was something a rule that I made for myself that no saying no to safe and appropriate invitations. So if I'm invited to a movie with a friend, I can't just say, no, I don't feel like it, I'm tired, and make up an excuse. It's, if it's safe and if it's appropriate, I go. And that, that rule alone opened up my life tremendously
1: that to people that don't struggle with social anorexia that may may not sound like a big deal but when you shared that that blew me away i was like she's she's a superhero to me <laughs> because that is for those of us that that have some social anxiety mm-hmm. and fear of responsibility and mm-hmm. commitment that is a terrifying uh, thing to to commit to,
0: yeah, and it was terrif- terrifying. I going to group events terrified me, like a volleyball game on, on the beach. It sounds so like so much fun, but I was terrified of it. But I would go there, and then I'd find that I had a great time at the end. So it each time I did something that was terrifying. And I got through it and I had fun. I was happy that I did it. And it, it, it now it's not even a big deal anymore. I don't get the same social anxiety as I used to.
1: That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, you're Middle Eastern.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and there's some specifics about your life. Uh, we're not going to get too specific about them because um, you want to remain uh, anonymous. And this, you're going to share some stuff that mm-hmm. is not easy to share with. And you're also... Um, there are relatives that you're concerned might might hear this. And I, I totally understand that. So to the listener, if it sounds like we're why are you not being more specific about that? That's that's why we're um, that's why we're doing that. So what um, what are the big issues? By the way, I recorded somebody last night. The same fly that was fucking with us last night <laughs> is still here. I think it, the fly finds the the podcast to be compelling. I think so. (laughs) Uh, Give us some broad strokes of the issues that you uh, struggle with.
0: Um, I have always struggled with low self-esteem and low self-worth and self-love. Not so much anymore. I've greatly overcome that through the healing work that I've done in the past almost three years. Through
1: through our support group, Mm -hmm. uh, with the help of your therapist.
0: Yeah, I have an amazing therapist. Her name is Pat Allen, Doctor Pat Allen. She's in Los Angeles. I just took her Want Training Institute. How to say spell want W A N T? Mm -hmm. How to say no to what you don't want and how to say yes to what you do want. Which that sounds so simple, but for me it wasn't. You know that that hasn't been simple for me. I because I grew up in in an environment where there were no boundaries. So I didn't learn how to have boundaries with other people um, because my family didn't have boundaries with me.
1: Give me some examples of the the, the lack of boundaries.
0: Um, gr- like a lot of criticism from people in my family. Um, and when I would bring up something to, to people who were supposed to protect me, like for example, the kids made so much fun of me. I would get on the bus and they would all be screaming out my name, you know, I have a foreign name. And they'd be screaming my name and making fun of me. And I'd go home crying every day and begging to be taken to school. And the response was, oh, just make fun of them back. (coughs) So I learned from an early age that if I bring up something that's happened to me, I'm not going to be protected. And so I stopped bringing up all these painful things that were happening to me as a child. And I would take them on as uh, I'm getting in trouble with people because I'm bad. So like my piano teacher, when I was nine, I I was with her from nine to 18. And I'd go, I'd get a lesson from her, and she would fly off the handle and pound the piano really hard and start screaming at the top of her lungs every time I made a mistake.
1: Oh my god.
0: It was insane.
1: Oh my god. Insane.
0: And I thought it was cuz I was bad, that because I didn't practice. So I oh never my told god. anyone. It was scary. So those type of things were happening to me as a child and I I never told anybody because I knew I wasn't going to be protected.
1: Um, so give me some snapshots from, from childhood, some, some seminal moments that you feel, um, have informed who you are good, bad, um, weirdly memorable. For Mm -hmm. some reason, sometimes we have those stuck in our brain. Like why, why is that staying with me all these years later?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the most painful memories that I had, um, was when I was in maybe fifth grade, there were these two boys, that th- they were my neighbors, and I played with them when we were younger. Up until third grade, everybody, all the kids in my neighborhood were friends. And then after that, they all kind of turned against me, and I just wasn't friends with them. So one day at the bus stop, the bus was just horrible for me. <laughs> so one day at the bus stop, they give me this brown paper bag, and they said that they said, we have a gift for you. And, you know, I was excited that these guys that used to be my friends were giving me a gift. So I I look in the brown paper bag and there was dog shit inside. And I was mortified. I wanted to die. Like I wanted to just be invisible and die and just go home and not have to see them ever again. I was mortified. So ever since then... I don't know if it's ever since then or just th- all these painful things that happened in my childhood. It made me want to be invisible. So I grew up trying to be as invisible as I could, not speaking up in groups, you know, when I was older. I I was in a book club when I was older and I refused to say anything in the book <laughs> club. <laughs> so I think that shaped me, that one memory, but plus a, a, the kids just at school making fun of me for different things they called me monkey. they were mean, you know. So that's one. And then I was molested when I was 12 for the first time. My, I was sent, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I was sent to California to visit my cousin and her her family and they, my cousin and her husband were in their 40s at the time. And they had three kids, two of them were older, and one was younger than me. So um, one night, after everybody had gone to bed, my cousin's husband said, um, you've been asking me to, to show you the stars, do you want to go see the stars? So of course, I was excited, I thought he was going to show me the stars through the telescope, it would be normal, but he was, He was. we went outside, and he just started touching my body underneath my clothes and i was uh, as as the um child the shy child i was i just stood there frozen i was frozen i was again i was mortified i w- just wanted it to end but i didn't do anything i just stood couldn't, there couldn't
1: find the words
0: i couldn't find i didn't have words as a kid to to defend myself ever N- i never remember um, defending myself
1: I wonder how many parents don't realize that you are handing your kid a script, whether you would like mm-hmm. it or not, they're going to have a script mm-hmm. for how they're going to deal with people outside the family yeah. based based on how you communicate with them inside the family. And um, that's the most common thing that that I have heard doing this show is the freezing, not being mm-hmm. able to find mm-hmm. the the words to yeah. to say that I don't or even the this.
0: action that the parents can teach kids an action like just get the fuck out. <laughs> and I didn't. I just stood there until he stopped. So, that night I went up to the the room and I just cried. I bawled. I was so upset. And Did you
1: blame yourself?
0: Um I don't remember blaming myself or I just remember feeling disgusted by him and, and in disbelief that that had just happened. And, you know, because I was 12, I, I it was before my first period, so I wasn't in puberty yet, but, st- but I was still a child, but I was, you know, at that age where I was developing, you know. And can we edit that?
1: Edit what part? The,
0: the developing. So we can say that I was 12. So Okay um
1: why why i mean just between you i don't and me, know
0: why? because i don't even remember if that's true I, that's okay. <laughs> I was developing or not uh, i just said that it's okay so, i mean i don't remember
1: i, I just think that's re- important that you don't remember yeah yeah okay because can, can we leave
0: okay that in? okay
1: because i think one of the ways that that Survivors use to beat themselves up is uh-huh. they treat it like it 's a court case okay that if you have a hole in your quote unquote court uh-huh. case, then what happened to you is somehow it's slightly invalidated yeah. or completely invalidated, and it 's one of the biggest hurdles to to healing yeah um so I think it's super important okay. That, okay. that you your the mean part of your brain is making yeah. too big of a of a well deal with that. the
0: other thing that happened with me as a child is that I grew up thinking that this was not a big deal, that other people had it worse than me. and maybe they did, but he that was not the only time he touched me. You know, he'd hold he'd hold and caress my hand in the car. He would look at me with lust. you know, even my therapist says, even if an adult looks at a child lustfully, That is abuse, sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, and it it can change their brain chemistry. Oh, yeah. So he really messed with me. And, you know, I would find myself waking up in the middle of the night masturbating. I I didn't even know I was doing it. He just opened a door to sexuality that just had not been there before he started molesting me.
1: In a way that was super (laughs) fucked up.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean that's obvious but um I I think because of the, the issues that that later um you began to to deal with because mm-hmm. I know some of your story. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's more than just um it's it would be like if you if you gave a kid their first surprise party and they came through the door and everybody had guns pointed at them it's like yeah they had their first surprise party but it was a fucking <laughs> terrible surprise party
0: <laughs> that does not sound fun
1: <laughs> um what when when you would when you would wake up what would you then think to yourself
0: I don't remember what I thought, but I remember that it felt good. And then I remember thinking, like, "What am I doing?" There's somebody else in the room, and I think his older daughter was in the room. And I would get really embarrassed because I didn't know what I was doing.
1: And were there any thoughts attached to to this? Any any, or was it just a general? This was how you were releasing anxiety in your sleep.
0: I I guess I was just doing it. Yeah, yeah, because the door of sexuality was open. So I had become okay. this sexual person. And I don't know, maybe I was just exploring that that was how I felt or explore, exploring my sexuality. But every, when I would wake up, I would have extreme embarrassment and shame about it.
1: Well, then you were doing it right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, you know, that never happened to me. Except in their house, what
1: never happened to you? The, the, waking the, the waking up, up,
0: masturbating. Yeah, that didn't happen to me. Except in the, that house where he molested me.
1: Oh, it, it sounds like that there, mm-hmm. that was a way of you soothing, you know, soothing yourself unconsciously. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, um, that becomes our way to soothe. Mm-hmm. That becomes our first, mm-hmm. our first drug in mm-hmm. in many ways. For for me, that definitely was the case until I found sweet, sweet weed and alcohol.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and also I read in books about sexual abuse that, um, you know, you become sexual when, mm. when you're abused as a child. Um, and so you're also curious about it. So at the same time that I was disgusted by him, I was curious that of him holding my hand. So I didn't want him to hold my hand, but I did want him to hold my hand. It was really messed up.
1: Talk about that more.
0: Um, yeah, I remember being in a car with him and him caressing my hand with his daughter who was five years younger than me in the back seat and feeling so gross and wishing he would stop holding my hand. But then I have another memory of everybody being gone. And again, I was in the alone in the house with him and wanting him to ask me to sit on the couch with him and hold my hand, which I don't think it happened, but I remember wanting that and being curious. And so that's just two very different things. So he yeah he disgusted me at the same time as very curious. I would go every year from the time I was 12 to 17 and visit and every every year I'd get angrier and angrier and more defiant and try to avoid him more.
1: And was he and was he still touching you when you were going um, on these
0: Sometimes like we'd play a game on on the kitchen table and he'd rub his knees against my knees. It would be like that. And, um, but it wasn't anything as bad as the first time. And I think he stopped holding my hand in the car. I remember one time he said to me, do you tell, are you close to your mom? Do you tell her things? Do you tell her everything? And I knew what he was asking. Mm-hmm. He was worried about me telling her. And yeah, I, he's said, basically
1: saying, am I going to jail?
0: huh. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I tell her we're close. I was trying to get him to stop, you know, and, obvi- and
1: obviously you hadn't told your, your parents because you, you knew the, how that was going to go.
0: Yeah. The only person I told was my best friend in sixth grade. I called her on the phone the first time it happened, and she didn't know what to say. She she didn't even – I don't even remember her saying anything. I mean,
1: that's not even on a kid's radar.
0: Exactly. She didn't know. So that's, that was the only person I told. I tried to tell – a family friend of theirs, a, another girl that was my age, because her sister, who was younger than uh, than me, said something about that he's weird and, and I don't know, he's weird or something. So I said to the sisters, I don't remember what I said exactly, but whatever I said, her response was, he's a doctor. He wouldn't do anything un- inappropriate. He's a doctor. Because I would get strep throat and he would take me into the other room and lift up my shirt and use his his stethoscope or whatever it's mm-hmm. called and listen to my chest. I I mean you you don't do that as a just because you're a doctor. So he was inappropriate and my it also happened to my cousin. My I had a cousin that was visiting from Europe. She was around the same age. We had a language barrier, but we were able to communicate with each other that he was touching her too. So I saw her twice during all those trips, once when I was 12 and once when I was 17. That was the last visit. And when I was 17, I was there with my mom and that my cousin, and we were all there for the wedding of their first daughter. So um, I remember I was sitting on the couch leaning forward and the small of my back was showing, my shirt was up, and, and my cousin said, lean back, he's, he's looking at you. You know, he's looking at you. And my, at night, he would take my mom and me to the hotel where we were staying. And I had tried to make it so obvious to my mom that I hated him. I would get out of the car, slam the door, and go up ahead into the hotel and be really rude, obviously rude. And my mm. mom just, she didn't get it. She didn't see it. So I was trying to tell other people other than that one cousin that had the same experience. But nobody, I, I didn't feel that I could tell anyone. So I just stopped going. I stopped ha- having relationship with the the family. Well, with him. I st- continued a relationship with the family until a couple years ago.
1: So how do you think this, obviously this f- f- had to feed greatly into your fear of, of social interactions. Um, how did you, how do you think this has affected you?
0: So it, it, it affected me so deeply in terms of my relationships. I believed that my only worth for the longest time was my sexuality and being able to attract men, um, being attractive to men. That was my only worth. And, you know, I grew up without a father. My father passed away when I was two. So I didn't know what it was like to have a healthy male figure in my life. Um So I didn't have that as an example. So when I went off to college, it was the first time that men were paying attention to me because, like I said, the kids that I grew up with were just really mean to me, and I truly believed I was ugly because how mean they were to me. So here I go off to college, um, and I'm getting male attention for the first time, and it was so exciting. I felt validated for the first time. I felt like... This I am worthy, you know, and so I had.
1: I'm just thinking of the irony of <laughs> your your first ex- experience, your first hope of not being objectified is around <laughs> college boys. <laughs> oh man!
0: Well, I was objectified. I didn't even know that that's what was happening. I mean, my first boyfriend in college. The only date he took me on was to his bedroom. That was that was our the only he never took me out ever and I thought that was, you know, normal. I didn't know. Um and then I was with him for a year and I wanted to get away from him so I didn't I didn't know how to uh, break up with him so i just transferred schools
1: so. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic that was
0: that was my way of breaking
1: that up is that's your script your it parents was. don't give you a script you're gonna write your own horrible screenplay yeah. <laughs> oh that is one of the most fantastic things i have ever heard
0: that's how i always broke up with my boyfriends i would just leave i wouldn't leave where I, wherever i was <laughs> oh my
1: god oh my god so what what kind of guy did you find yourself i imagine there was a repetitive nature to the relationships you would get into mm-hmm. describe the typical kind of guy that that you um either sought out or mm-hmm. let in
0: well, there was the before I started therapy guy and after. So the before I thought started therapy guy, he was just looking for sex. and I that's what I gave, you know, I I didn't know any better. I didn't know I was supposed to have a relationship and, and did dating. You, and,
1: and were you enjoying yourself uh, um, sexually?
0: I think so. Okay. Yeah. I never had problems.
1: Were you finding... Because I a, was
0: sexualized so young, so I right. never had problems.
1: But did you find that there was an accompanying uh, emptiness that you were either aware mm-hmm. of or
0: unaware of? Definitely an emptiness, because these people weren't my boyfriends. You know, even if I thought they were my boyfriends, they really weren't. So it was just about hooking up. So it did feel very empty and very lonely. And I was depressed for a long time.
1: Were there fantasies in your head of how what you would get out of the relationship that, that would fix the emptiness?
0: I just always had a fantasy that I was very sad and these guys would come save me from my sadness. And I mean, it, it went a lot. I mean, I was just depressed for so long. You have no so. idea
1: how <laughs> much I relate to that. You have no idea how much I relate to that. That sadness yeah. in the chest mm-hmm. is. I, I was just describing to somebody today when it, when it, because for me, it kind of comes and goes. And when it comes in, It's like an anvil on my chest that squeezes out any interest in anything, and then it pulls in like air. It just pulls in loneliness, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's just this void in my chest, and all I want is to just be emotionally saved.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's how it was for a long time. I was sad i had depressed i had this fantasy of these guys saving me from my sadness but that never happened and so at the end of graduate school i was 28 and i was dating one a musician and and
1: and by the way you're how old
0: now i'm 39 okay Mm -hmm. so i was 28 dating a musician that it was just sex and I was crying to my friend because the relationship, had, the relationship in quotes, <laughs> had crashed. And so my friend said to me, have you ever been sexually abused? Because you act like it, this is, that's your behavior. And, and I said, yeah. She said, you, have you gotten therapy for it? And I said, I never have. And so she suggested I start therapy. So at 28, I, I did start therapy for it, which is interesting because at the beginning of graduate school, I went to a psychiatrist because I I thought I had ADD. I could not concentrate in class and I it was the same in high school and college. I always just daydreamed throughout Um, all my schooling. I don't know how I made it through. I just barely made it through. So I went to get tested for ADD and then they, they said, well, we think you have ADD, but you have to run it by a psychiatrist first. So that psychiatrist said, I don't think you have ADD. I think you have depression. And so he started me on an antidepressant. I can't remember the name, but I hated it. I did it for ten days. It made me really jittery. I hated him. I didn't like him at all. I had told him my whole story, and he just wasn't very sympathetic. He just said, "I just think you have depression." So P- I didn't.
1: Psychiatrists can be the worst at talk the therapy. Worst. The yeah. worst. They make mm-hmm. you feel. There's like, they need a like a one year course in empathy.
0: Yeah, he had none. Yeah, and especially when I. I told him that I had stopped the medication on the weekend. He was upset with me, but I couldn't stand it. It was making me so jittery. So I just, I never went back. Was and it I'd, Wellbutrin? No, it okay. wasn't Wellbutrin. I don't okay. remember the name. Um, so I never went back and I didn't get help for that depression, but I really, d- I really was depressed. He was right, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just the way they so. <laughs> go about it. I don't think they understand the way they go about mm-hmm. it as as much to do
0: mm-hmm.
1: as with the problem solving of it, um, so so then what happened?
0: So then this was a turning point in my life, me, turning tw- or being twenty eight, end of graduate school. My friend telling me I need therapy, and I agreed, and so I decided that I was going to. Give up drinking, because drinking was a huge part. I drank for 12 years. I started in high school, and I finished at 28. And I drank so that I wouldn't have inhibitions with guys, because I was so nervous around guys. And th- that's what allowed me to have these so-called relationships with what, guys.
1: What were the fears? Was it a nebulous fear, or a fear of rejection?
0: Fear of rejection, and just I was sev- extremely insecure. Okay. You know, I had no self-love. And um, so I decided I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start therapy. And I moved to a different state. And I just started my life over thinking that that just by stopping drinking and going to therapy, everything would change. And it didn't. Um, but did it, it get was, better? It got a little better. Um, and one thing that I did is I... Confronted my cousin's husband, who had molested me. I confronted him for the first time in a letter. I wrote him a letter and I said that what he did to me was sick as a child, and um, I had never brought it up to to him before that. So that started my therapy, and I found a therapist. And and had
1: your therapist suggested uh, suggested you write mm, that?
0: I. Th- think so. I I think what happened was the therapist said, why don't we contact Child Protective Services in California? And I was very scared to do that because I didn't want it to get out. I was so ashamed of this.
1: Boy, that is the catch-22 mm-hmm. of it, isn't it? It was it?
0: crazy. But I did. I, I went along with her. I agreed. We called Child Protective Services. They told me they couldn't do anything about it. And I was relieved. Because, so they,
1: because they needed some type of proof?
0: Too much time had gone by. The statute of limitations was was in place, so too much time had gone by.
1: This is a great place for you okay. to talk about the petition. So,
0: um, very exciting, because I have not um, stopped wanting to get justice for what happened to me as a child, um, and... I have done a lot, but that because of the statute of limitations, I cannot have legal justice. Um, so one of a dear friend of mine started this amazing petition and website, and the website is willnotrest dot com, w i l l n o t r e s t dot com, will not rest, and it's to end the statute of limitations on. Um, so that people who've been molested and sexually abused as children can, 40 years later, as adults, prosecute the um, the person who um, w- victimized them. And this friend of mine was also um, sexually abused as a child by his uncle, and his website, willnotrest.com, talks about his story. And it's an amazing story, and he also has a very inspiring story of recovery and um he's actually played a, a a huge part in my recent recovery because i've i've took some i've taken other actions like recently i went to the police and i filed a police report against my cousin's husband and i also met met with my cousin's wife my cousin like mm-hmm. his his wife and i told her about the abuse and these things and i what did she say she denied it
1: Sounds yeah, pretty she typical.
0: denied it mm-hmm. and then since then I've cut off my ties with her I, I cut her off I took her off my facebook, and um, I used to be in touch with her daughter his her youngest daughter. We were close, close friends, and I stopped reaching out to her. I don't know if she knows or not what happened, but I just stopped for my own you know emotional well being I stopped reaching out to her so um, yeah, in the past few years i I've continued. Um, working towards um, justice against what what's happened to me. Um, but in the early days when I was twenty eight, um, and I was starting the therapy and I, um, I I wrote that letter to him, so that was the first step. Second. And did you hear
1: anything back from him?
0: I did. Mm-hmm. I got a weird email. And I wrote back and I said, what is this weird email you're sending? It was a forward. And he said, Oh, you told me not to get in touch with you. And so I, I was respecting you. And I said, I never told you not to get in touch with me. There, I just have nothing to say to you. And he said, Oh, well, I just wanted to explain, explain what happened. And, and then, you know. What's there to explain? There was nothing to explain. I, I, I told him that there's nothing to explain. He said he was just trying to be, you know, there for me as an (laughs) uncle, or I don't know what he was trying to say, but there was nothing to explain. But it was still between the two of us. And then- The only
1: thing I think he could have explained was, I I was trying to make your other uncles look better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what he was trying to explain, but a few years later, I told the head of our church group. And they started an investigation. And so this was a few years later.
1: Church group where he lived or where you lived?
0: It's um, not where either of us lived. I see. It's a national yeah. it's an, It was the national center, uh, the international center, actually. I told okay. them. They started an investigation. And so at that time, I knew I had to tell my family. So I told my mom what happened. She completely supported me, which was What did that awesome. feel like? awesome because i thought she was going to blame me for not telling her as a child i thought she was going to say why didn't you tell me when you were a child and you know she did say that to me why didn't you tell me but not in an accusing mean way she just kind of i wish you would have told me mm because i
1: would like to have been there for you what emotions came up for you when did, did you start crying
0: I was crying before I told her, and actually, someone had just broken up with me. A guy had just broken up with me, and she—I was crying to her, and I was—I took that opportunity to tell her because I knew she was feeling sorry for me.
1: It's <laughs> <That's> so sad, <laughs> sad and was, awesome at the I same know, time. Kind of genius scared. on your part,
0: <laughs> exactly. Because I was so scared of her. That that's what I would have to do. I'd have to manipulate her in some way. So she feels sorry for me. So she's not going to abuse me when I tell her this big news. And, you know, I was really glad I told her because this cousin's husband called my mom and said, Maddie's lying. I think she's she 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 doesn't. She was confused. That's what he said. She was confused. And my mom said, I believe Maddie, you know she and she stood behind me and my family stood behind me so and
1: have they had contact with uh, the the cousin and the husband since you um told them
0: y- you know not re- i think it's it was a secret up until two years ago it was a secret from the rest of the family so only my mom and brother and 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 he knew and i knew but then Two years ago, when I met with my actual cousin to tell her, um, then I think she knew before. I think he had told her at the meeting when I met with her. She already knew coming into the meeting. I could tell because she was very angry. So she had stopped calling my mom. You know. So I.
1: Th- so she knew. She knew. She knew.
0: Yeah. So she knew, and my mom has stopped calling her. So it, there has been no, no conflict. So they're really
1: protecting you. Your mm-hmm. family is really mm-hmm. protecting you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that, that I'll see sometimes is the family will verbally support the person and then invite that person over for, uh, you know, the abuser over for Thanksgiving.
0: Oh, And no. it's like. In fact, my brother called him and said, you are not invited to my wedding. And. Or the d- dinner before the wedding. and Because I, I was going to be there. And even if I wasn't there. Um, and his wife, my cousin, showed up. At that point, she didn't know. Mm. So she showed up to the wedding. and
1: So he probably had to make an excuse to her why he couldn't he sa- be there. He said he was
0: sick. He said he was sick. Yeah. So I was very... My family stood behind me. And that felt great. That felt really... That It still to this day feels great. They don't necessarily understand the effects of being molested. So I... That I don't have support around that with them because they don't understand. I
1: I think sometimes we don't even understand the the effects yeah. of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you Maddie and I were talking before we started rolling. You know, she was asking me how I was doing, and I was just basically saying, you know, this confusing spaghetti bowl of feelings where you don't know what's real or what isn't. You feel like you're backsliding into mm-hmm. depression and. um you know, all the bullshit that you thought that that you had worked through here mm-hmm. it is back again. The crushing loneliness, the sadness, the wanting to withdraw, all that stuff mm-hmm. coming back. And I, I think people <clears throat> who haven't experienced that think that it's just about the act, and it's really not. It's about the the, the repercussions of the of the act. I, it's like I, I almost never think really about. The act yeah. itself, it's the feelings inside me mm-hmm. that are left that mm-hmm. that I'm told, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, my therapists and mm-hmm. books I read are related to it.
0: Yeah, I had to read so many books about what what was happening to me and what why I was acting the way I was. And then it all made sense.
1: What were some of the books?
0: Oh I don't remember the books, but I just remember some of the things that the therapists would tell me like disassociating I was disassociating so I would i I got EMDR for for that, and that was only two years ago that I did the EMDR and, and, and
1: that really helped you
0: It helped me tremendously because I would disassociate my thoughts and my feelings and now they're together um so b- I would just, you know, be having meaningless sex and not really feel anything. And then after I entered a recovery program two and a half years ago, then I was at the other other end of the spectrum. I wouldn't want a guy even touching my hand. I was so disgusted. So my therapist sent me to EMDR for this, and that really helped me.
1: So it's like you got back in your body Mm -hmm. and... Experienced the pain that uh-huh. you really. If you hadn't disassociated, you would have felt at the yeah. time when you were being abused, yeah. and then you had to go. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm back in my body mm-hmm. now. Let's mm-hmm. let's really begin mm-hmm. the the healing. And what was what was that like? What did that look like? That that healing?
0: Oh, it's been it was amazing because after that, I was able to go on dates with guys and really feel in my body if I had chemistry for them or not. And, and it's, I just felt that I grew up, I matured through the EMDR. It helped me mature into an adult. And I always felt like a child before that. And it wasn't just the EMDR. It was other, my other recovery programs too, but that was a huge part of it for me. And how many sessions did you do? I only did 12 total, you know, It, it doesn't take a long time.
1: And I know that uh, EMDR um, facilitators will say, you know, give me 10 of the most traumatic events in your mm-hmm. life, and they'll often start with the least traumatic of mm-hmm. the 10, and, you know, you'll mm-hmm. do the the thing. And what would you experience during the session, and what would you experience, if anything, mm-hmm. after the session?
0: Yeah, so he had me give him six of the, the most traumatic, and then I think we started with the middle one, not the most and not the least. And, um, but it still brought tears and sadness and
1: during the session. Yeah, during
0: the session. I, I cried a lot during the sessions. And then, you know, he would have me go over it in my mind how I, how I could replay it, the session and at what happened to me as a child. So I, I did bring up the, those two kids giving me the, the dog shit in the bag. That was one of them. And
1: how did you replay it in your mind? How did you take I th- control?
0: I think I replayed it by um, saying, oh, this is mean. And
1: I was kind of hoping you were going to rub their shit in their <laughs> face.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and standing up for myself yeah. because that was huge for me. I couldn't yeah. stand up for myself. So I, I replayed it by standing up for myself. And so slowly I, I noticed in my life I was starting to create boundaries with people. And at the time, I had this boss that had no boundaries with me. He would comment on my weight and what I'd eat and what I was wearing and my religion. He would—he had no boundaries.
1: And what would you feel... Before you did any e- mm-hmm. EMDR, when he would say those things, would you just shut down and kind of disassociate?
0: Yeah. It? I would shut down. I would try to be, again, invisible, like I said. I would. Just wait
1: for it to blow yeah, over. Oh, just he's going to talking stop talking soon. Yeah. yeah, I
0: can't wait for him to stop talking. That's how it was. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I'm starting to speak up.
1: Saying and things like.
0: Well, I just went right to HR. <laughs> and I good said, for you. Yeah. I said, he is. Um, Uh, harassing me and it has to stop and i gave i gave the specific examples and the hr person said oh he does that to me too and you know what i said i said i don't care he cannot do it to me anymore it has to stop the harassment has to stop
1: god you are my fucking hero (laughs) you are my fucking hero
0: felt so amazing for the first time one of the first times i actually Stood up for myself. And this was only, I think, three years ago. (laughs) Not even. God.
1: (laughs) And you credit EMDR as being the the real turning point in being able to stand up for yourself or that in combination with the support groups and therapy? Yeah, the combination with
0: 12 steps, um, my cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR. Yeah. But definitely EMDR was in the forefront for creating boundaries, for sure.
1: Uh, by kind of rewiring your brain and yeah. picturing in your, yeah. in your brain you going back and, mm-hmm. and taking.
0: Because one of the things that the therapist told me is, especially for children that ha- have been sexually abused, it causes brain damage. So your brain changes, your brain chemistry changes. So I have, in the last three years, been rewiring my brain, actively rewiring my brain through all of these different types of therapy.
1: Would you be exhausted after EMDR?
0: uh i don't it didn't exhaust me but i did have good night's sleep i would yeah. have a good night's sleep
1: i would go home and sleep for three hours just wow couldn't even keep my eyes open there was one session that was really powerful where uh, i slept almost nonstop stop for two days oh, wow
0: well and how did you do it with the buzzing in your hand yeah. or yeah, yeah the little paddles so. mm-hmm. you hold
1: the paddles in your hand yeah um and i did feel more relaxed uh mm-hmm. after that i think i need to go back
0: I think it's I need great. to go back.
1: So um, you began to to set boundaries. What are what are some other markers on uh, you getting better? You you started to um, be be in your body more mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. relationships and um pick, uh, be drawn towards people that were mm-hmm. healthier.
0: Well, yes, I was drawn towards people that were healthier. But one of the things that started changing was. I started liking myself for the first time so here I am the last three years I start to like myself my depression starts to go away I don't feel depressed anymore except on you know special occasions like I'm being broken up with
1: which happened Thursday (laughs)
0: which happened Thursday thank
1: you for not canceling
0: oh you're welcome Um, it's good to be of service I I wanted to be of service and you know um, But three years, four years ago, when I went through a really horrible breakup, my life just was destroyed by that breakup and everything that I everything that I did was destroyed. So I couldn't do anything. And but this last relationship, I didn't stop any of the activities I was doing. Um, I had this full life. I kept going. So when we broke up, I still had a full life that I wanted to show up for. And so I spent one day depressed and that was a pretty scary day though, because I hadn't been, I hadn't felt depression in in maybe two years. I haven't felt that hopelessness that comes with the depression.
1: And you were, had been with this person for how long?
0: Not long, just less than three months, but it was, we had talked about marriage and kids and, you know, he was bringing up this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was the seriousness of the relationship and, the compatibility and the we you know we were talking as adults so
1: and do you go back and forth now in in the uh, i know it's only been mm-hmm. 5 days mm-hmm. um do you get is is the the pain of it 90% gone does it come back in waves
0: i would say 70% gone um i've That's cried i've cried every day so far um I almost cried today. (laughs) Um, I did a little bit, but not too much. Um, I'm way more in acceptance of it because today, because of my 12-step program, I live in – I'm not living in my will. I live in my higher power's will. So I I accept things way more easily than I used to. And so they, they don't wreck me, you know?
1: Um, when you say you accept things, you mean things that you don't have any control over, yes, like whether or not he exactly. chooses to be in a relationship exactly. with you.
0: And so for the first time that someone broke up with me, I didn't argue with him. I, you know, that was his experience. He he said he couldn't give a commitment. He he got overwhelmed. And so I accept that's his experience. I, I wasn't going to argue. In, in the past, I would have argued with them. I would have been in denial, begged them, you know, I don't. I don't want to go there, and I don't feel the need to go there.
1: Give me some snapshots of handling a breakup badly in the past.
0: Oh, gosh. (laughs) So my last relationship right before I came into my 12-step program was horrible. It was a train wreck. Um, How I handled it. I begged him not to break up with me. Do you remember what you said? Um. I don't remember what I said. I think I used some pleases, and I don't know. I don't. Remember. I don't remember. But I was crying nonstop. The doctor gave me ativan just so I could make it through work without crying, because I'd literally be crying all day for days. I mean, I cried for months after that breakup, and um it was just—it was horrible. My My life consisted of going to work and taking Ativan to make it through the day and then just going home and crying. (laughs) That That was my life.
1: That sounds like a full day.
0: For several months. And it would be
1: fair to say that it wasn't really about that guy, (laughs) that it was just bringing up the childhood wound of, of not feeling like anybody was listening to you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds obvious, no. but I think it's good to be reminded of it. Because like <laughs> when I have friends that can't let go of, you know, having... Because I, I think there's the healthy mourning a relationship mm-hmm. breaking up. Mm-hmm. And then there's the um, just clinging, not accepting yeah. <laughs> it. Yep, that and I think made. that's when it, it's mm-hmm. hysterical. It's mm-hmm. a historical thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. just a, a human thing.
0: I didn't even really like that guy, and so just... awesome. But I couldn't it, be alone.
1: At least you didn't move. This is the first time you didn't react by <laughs> packing a box. I
0: didn't move. That's true. I think I was so. De- this was the worst breakup I, that I had ever had. So it was so depressing for me. I I couldn't move. Wow. <laughs> it was that debilitating, but I.
1: I'm just going to adjust your mic a tiny bit.
0: Oh, okay, sure. So I knew... No, at the time, I didn't know it wasn't about me. At the time, I thought it was me, and I wanted him back, and it was my fault, and I don't even know what what went wrong. We just couldn't get along. We never got along. We couldn't go one week without fighting. Not one week. It was crazy. I would write it in my calendar. (laughs) Each fight to try to to try to um, try to go one week without fighting it was great.
1: I, I wonder if there's an app for that called <laughs> Bad Picker. Bad Picker.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know, with this breakup, I for the first time I realized it wasn't about me. It was not about me at all.
1: Wow, what freedom!
0: It was su- it's What's such freedom. freedom. Yeah, and I love myself. I don't love myself any less. I'm not. Beating myself up over it like I was in the past. I don't need Advan.
1: I'm starting to get jealous of you. I'm starting to resent you, actually. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because your recovery oh. it looks. Uh, I feel. Uh, I, I just feel like. Um, I feel like a guy that couldn't even make it into the NBA, and you're Michael Jordan. <laughs>
0: That is so that's a nice thing to say. I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: but it's awesome to it's inspiring to see that there can be such such great recovery and, and you know, the thing that I think needs to be highlighted more than anything is how much of the work you've done. Um you know, I'm just I'm struck by um when you were 28 and that person said, oh, it, it sounds like you were uh, sexually molested. Have you ever thought of therapy that you immediately embraced it? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's a, a, a genetic thing that somebody, it, because a lot of people can't. Yeah. They just, they don't want to get help. Yeah. And here you are, somebody <laughs> who is terrified of people and you just dove right into the deep end. Where do you think that comes from?
0: I, You know, I think my pain was so great for so long. I mean, my whole life, really, except until recently, that I was willing to do anything. So when she said that, I dove into this... Um, I'm going to get therapy. So I I just kept going from therapist to therapist. Anytime I'd move, I'd find a new therapist. And if the therapist wasn't right, I'd find another therapist.
1: What did you find in a therapist that didn't work? And what did you find in a therapist that did work?
0: So before I found the 12-step program, I was only doing talk therapy. And I realized later that that didn't really work for me because I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing any work. I was just talking about it. So while it was great to understand why I was the way I was,
1: it didn't change me.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it didn't really change me. So the 12-step program is very cognitive behavioral work. That started to change me um, a lot. I I think I had more recovery in my first nine months of of 12-step program than I did in eight years of, of talk therapy. Um, what
1: would you say to the people who say uh, it's a cult? You know, they talk about uh, God. Um, it's you know smoke and mirrors. What?
0: I don't. I don't know what I'd say to them. But I came in very skeptical because I came from a religion where I believed in God my whole life. I always believed in God. I I would say prayers growing up. You know. So I thought this this is – the 12-step program is for people who don't believe in God, and they need to develop a belief in God. But what I didn't realize is that I – maybe I had a belief in God, but I had no relationship with God at all. So that's what the 12-step program gave me, is this relationship with a higher power. And I guess for people that don't believe in God, it doesn't have to be God. It's just a higher power – a power greater than yourself – that you derive strength from and guidance from and it can be it's as simple as your instinct or intuition inside yourself that can be god that's a higher power my intuition my instinct is my higher power also
1: so elaborate on what you mean when you say a relationship with your higher power what does what is a relationship with something that you can't physically see or touch
0: yeah i mean i talk to god i pray to god What what um, you say I I, sometimes I just say, please give me guidance. Please guide me through this. I'm having a difficult time. This is painful. And, you know, I'll even call out to my dad because, you know, my dad died when I was two. So I feel like his spirit guides me. I I don't only believe in the guidance of a higher power. So there's my dad and I have a visual. um, I have a picture of him. I know what he looks like. So that that can help me, too. And so, if people believe in angels, it's like an angel, a spirit
1: and and talk about the actions <clears throat> that connect you to your your higher power outside of praying you know maybe that involve um, people in your day to day activity
0: um So I just try to,
1: I'm assuming that that that's another way that you connect Mm -hmm. to your higher power is through your interactions with other other
0: people. people, Yeah. And through different experiences that I'm having, I just try to be teachable. I I try to be open and teachable. So I go out into the world and I'm, I'm doing my job and I meet people through my job and I can only be responsible for my actions and I can't. I can't control the other person. I used to try to control the other person so much. I don't, I don't try to do that so much anymore. I let them be themselves. And, um,
1: that's what's so great about boundaries mm -hmm. is if you're willing to walk away, then you don't have to try to control.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then sometimes people will say things to you and you, you, it's like, it's, that's a God shot. Like on the way here, I was talking to a friend of mine and she was going to speak at a meeting and she saw someone at that meeting that she did not want to speak in front of. And so when the meeting started, they announced a different speaker.
1: Good for her,
0: Or him. Yeah, they announced a different speaker, so my friend was able to get up and leave. she had so much fear of speaking and then she didn't have to.
1: Oh, she didn't even say, can you get somebody else? Exactly,
0: exactly. that's hilarious. So that's how I feel higher power works in our lives, by these miracles.
1: What do you say then to the person who says, well, if there is a God, why would they let a child starve to death in Africa? Why would they allow a uh, 10 or 11-year-old Maddie to -hmm. be... Uh, taken advantage mm-hmm. of by this man who was yeah. uh, related to her.
0: So these are really difficult questions. I personally believe that, that this world is fleeting. This is just a physical world and at our our spirit will live on and we this we're not going to be here forever, but our spirit will live on forever. What did forever. you hear? Sorry?
1: I said, what did you hear? You said, we're not going to be here forever. What do you know? <laughs> Just, I just
0: mean that you. I know, haven't we, checked my Facebook in a while. <laughs> no apocalypse. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I I'm going to be here. What forty, sixty more years, and then I hopefully, you know, and this world is just it's doesn't last very long, and it's our spirits that last long. So I'm here to, you know, my for my spirit to grow and for me to grow closer to my higher power and develop a spiritual life that's that's my that i feel that that's my purpose in life and so that what does that entail that entails justice like working towards justice for example um with the petition like the petition that will not rest or it entails being of service to people like to my family or just to other people you know just being a good person which Um, is
1: a spiritual act mm -hmm. those are all spiritual acts
0: yeah yeah so and and then that that's how you find that's how I find joy and happiness in life. You know, before three years ago when when my whole life was my whole goal in life was to find a man to get married and have kids. That was my entire goal. So of course when it didn't happen my life came crashing down.
1: Your your ad on the dating site said, Please save me. That's all <laughs> it said in a picture.
0: Pretty much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> looking to be rescued at gmail.com.
0: <laughs> I, that's taken. Yeah, that's my email address.
1: <laughs> um so I, I, I the thing that I love about your story is that the peace and the joy that you experience are not only a byproduct of the self uh the, the inner self work that you've done, but how you relate to the world mm-hmm. and trying to make the world a, mm-hmm. a better place. Is that is that fair to say?
0: That's fair to say. But it was it's only possible now that I like myself. Because when I was walking around the world with self loathing, I couldn't be nice to other people. It was really hard for me to be kind to other people. And now I I am able to.
1: So you're you're doing what they say uh giving from a place of abundance mm. rather than giving from a place of mm-hmm, fear mm-hmm. that you're not going to be liked. Yeah. Or you're going to be disliked. Right. Yeah.
0: And I'm able to be present for other people. So What like, does that mean? Like um for example, I would go play with my nephew, like hang out and play games with him and I wouldn't be there. My head was thinking about guys or the online dating I was doing. And now I go and I I can play with him. And even after my breakup, I was doing a puzzle with him the other day and I was so present. I was there with him engaging in this, making this puzzle. And I wasn't, my thoughts weren't somewhere else. I was present.
1: And that is, this sounds corny, but that is the best gift that you can give children. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, they like toys that are expensive, but they're not going to remember those yeah. when they're 16. He's going to remember back to, you mm-hmm. know, his, his, it, it was your nephew. Yeah. Yeah. He's going mm-hmm. to remember back to the, those mm-hmm. moments playing and doing the puzzles with yeah. his aunt.
0: Exactly. And they're precious. And he loves to play with me. You know, we play Simon says hide and go seek and it's fun. I have fun and he has fun and, and so it builds memories. memories. It's, they're yeah. so good at being the, present. They're only present. I asked him how how school was today, and he he can't even go there. He yeah. just wants to be present. Yeah, it's amazing how kids are.
1: So, what else would you like to share uh, in terms of your your um, your story, your growth, what you've learned, what you struggle with, where you are today, and any of that, mm. or anything else?
0: Well. Where I am today. So a lot, I think, of where I am today has to do with the actions I've been taking, the little baby steps I've been taking um, with, you know, justice towards what happened to me. So, um and it's been over, since I was 20, it's been 11 years and I consist, I have been, it keeps coming up in my life. I keep thinking that, okay, I've, I'm done. I've moved on from this. But I, I've never, you never will fully heal from sexual abuse, I think. You never will. I mean, I just saw him in February and I had PTSD and I was crying for two months. And wow. so, and then that restarted it again because I think it was the year before was when I met with his wife and told her what had happened to me. So I thought, okay, there, there's another, I'm closing the door. I've, I've healed, but you, you're never fully healed. That so, door
1: keeps opening. Mm,
0: it keeps yeah. opening. So after I saw him. I went that's when I went to the police and filed a police report and I tried to start finding a lawyer who would take my case and none of the lawyers were taking my case. And then all of a sudden my friend posts this website and I was ecstatic. I, I just it's like there's so much hope in this. Um
1: Are you are you able to um, do that thing, you know, where they say, do the footwork, but stay out of the results? I mean, like, if this doesn't get yep. passed, mm-hmm. do you feel like you're going to be back to square one before, not square, square one, but square one of that day where you discovered the petition?
0: Um, I I think that I keep getting stronger by every little action that I do take. So I don't think I would be back at square one. I, th- I keep moving forward. Um, But the most important thing that I did was reporting it to the religious authorities way back then. Um, I think that was um, uh, not when I was 28. Maybe I was 32 at that time because they were able to just make sure that he's not around other children. That was the most important thing to do, to just make sure other children mm-hmm. are protected. Now everything I do forward is it's really for my own healing Um,
1: And and I want to say to anybody out there who hasn't been able to contact the authorities, that hasn't been able to um, confront anyone, um, do not feel ashamed. It is up to each person to decide what they do with what happened to them, and there is no right or wrong.
0: Yeah, and it took me years to get to – at 28, I realized what had happened, and it took me about five years before I was even ready to go to, to any authority and took me another five years to do more action. It, keeps, it takes time. You, everybody is on a different path, and I'm not ready to go public with my story, and my friend has. Um, everyone is different. Everyone's on a different path. And I'm very gentle with myself on that also.
1: That seems to be one of the biggest things in healing from uh, childhood abuse mm-hmm. is being gentle with yourself. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that you're gentle with yourself?
0: Um, when I make mistakes at work, which I do probably every day, <laughs> I don't beat myself up over it anymore you know i think everybody makes mistakes mistakes are for learning i'll do better next time all of these things so that i'm not going home feeling horrible about myself
1: so it sounds like there's there's uh, an underlying perfectionism uh, in oh, there yeah. too that needs to be uh, yeah. uh dealt with on a mm-hmm. on a daily basis yeah, so and i'm I- saying this because i <laughs> i i know personally that mm-hmm. that's um not, not only the, the deal with you, but with, with a lot of us that, that suffer from self-hatred and, yeah. and beating ourselves up.
0: That be perfect is a horrible driver.
1: It's horrible. And it's... if you think about it, what, why would we ever be rejected by anybody for not being perfect? Uh, anybody that we want in our lives. Mm-hmm. I can't ever remember rejecting a friend saying, ah, they're not perfect.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I do my best and I'm not perfect. I'm perfectly imperfect.
1: <laughs> anything else you'd like to uh, to share?
0: Um, I can't think of anything. Give me a
1: couple of fears.
0: Okay. So my biggest fear is that I won't ever meet a man I have chemistry with, mm-hmm. who I'm also compatible with, and it's mutual. Because it's usually one or the other. Um, and then in, t- tied to that, I'm afraid that... Uh, hold on, before uh-huh. you go
1: to the next one, mm-hmm. is that a fear that you hope to i don't know if overcome is the right word uh, a fear that you hope to dissipate that you feel Mm -hmm. like through healing that that fear will ease has it eased
0: i think this fear is directly tied into having faith that i will meet somebody who i have chemistry and i'm compatible with so having faith and not having limiting beliefs. Like, for instance, there are no men in L.A. for me. Very limiting belief. You know, so that f- that's tied directly into having faith.
1: Okay. Um, what was the next one?
0: Um, I'm afraid that everyone feels sorry for me that I'm still single and wonders what's wrong with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Give me another one.
0: Um, so this is a fear that I have actually every day every day i fear that my boss will call me into her office and reprimand me for something because sometimes i get to work and there's something on my desk that says see me and i literally feel like i'm in school and the teacher is i'm in trouble with the teacher
1: (laughs) i panic when i don't get emailed or texted back from somebody and i immediately (laughs) scan everything i've said to them in the last correspondence and go through it like a lawyer going Whoa, you know what how could this have possibly uh, been taken the wrong way and and it's always oh sorry I've been swamped I didn't yeah. have a chance to check my email and I know that intellectually but emotionally mm-hmm. I immediately go to the place of I'm a terrible person mm-hmm. with no boundaries and I begin <laughs> to experience that childhood shame it's, and I know I'm not the only one yeah uh, no give me no, another no. one.
0: Okay. I fear that my depression will return and I'll be so depressed I won't be able to do anything about it.
1: Mm, That is a tough place to be. Mm -hmm. That is a tough place to be. Was that your last fear? That's
0: my last fear. Give
1: me some love. Okay.
0: I love when I arrive at my brother's house and open the door and my five-year-old nephew screams out, auntie, and runs and gives me a huge hug and he does it every time and it's been ever since he could walk.
1: Oh wow it's the best welcome that's, ever. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. awesome. You know
0: one? Um I'm really into salsa dancing so I love dancing with an amazing salsa dancer and one of my favorite songs come on comes on and I literally feel high when that happens. Mm-hmm. How great
1: best. is Hector Laveau. He, he yeah. the first time I heard his music <laughs> I was like I dare you to not move your feet
0: mm-hmm.
1: when when this guy's music is on. It's so It's so amazing.
0: I started salsa dancing after I stopped drinking because most people who go salsa dancing don't drink, and so it 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 gave me that natural high. You know, it was awesome. And
1: and I would imagine what a great way to get back into your body.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been great.
1: That's one of the things that I think I really love about hockey is is it's um, I'm proud of my body. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not objectifying my body. I'm not um i i'm i'm getting to feel what is special about it i'm expressing mm-hmm. myself in a way that is healthy and masculine yeah.
0: yeah and then for the salsa these men are leading me and and i'm trusting them and it's a healthy dance and they're it most has clear boundaries yeah it has clear boundaries and it they show me that they're not creepy most of them mm-hmm. and then if they are i can have a chance to practice my boundaries so it's good. It's
1: awesome. Give me another one.
0: I love when I'm ordering something online and I remember to do a Google search for a promo code <laughs> and I find one that's $20 off. <laughs> oh,
1: that's a nice one. Was that your last one? You got no, one more. No, I have one
0: more. I love that my 77-year-old mother just learned how to text with an iPhone and sends me emojis. <laughs>
1: That's sweet that's sweet, I imagine there's a lot of people who are not excited that their seventy seven year old <laughs> mother learned how to use a smartphone, but that's awesome that that you do well Maddie, thank you so much for for coming and uh and and doing this um thanks for having me I'm uh, really happy to be your friend and i'm so um I'm so happy to put up an episode where somebody's recovery is so concrete and inspiring
0: thank you thank you so much
1: really loved uh, talking talking to her and uh, I shot her an email and told her her episode was going up and asked her if she had any updates and uh, she said that uh, the petition that her friend is uh, a, a part of is still up, and they're taking signatures. And uh, the URL is way too long to, to read, so we'll put it up on the show notes for this episode. Uh, and our website, again, is mentalpod.com. And she writes, uh, I haven't been active with seeking legal uh, justice because a few months ago I received a letter from the national elected body of my religion stating that he was removed from the local elected body, so similar to being removed from the church leadership. And that gave me so much relief. Life is generally great. I was promoted at work and I've been traveling a lot and enjoying life. Love it. Love it. Love uh, Want to give some love to a, uh, a new sponsor that we have, uh, Casper Mattresses. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Casper Mattresses, but uh, it's a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. You gotta have breathable sheets, man. There is nothing worse than, uh, than sheets that make you sweat. Uh, You know, a lot of times mattresses will cost uh, well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost $500 for a twin size, uh, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. Uh, Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They understand the importance of sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Or, if you're listeners to this show, two-thirds of your life on it. Um, Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Uh, it's free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And uh, again, 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. It's made in America. That's another big thing. And uh, you'll get 50 bucks towards any mattress uh, that you buy by visiting casper.com mental and using the offer code mental. Uh, terms and conditions apply. And uh, please go go do it. It's a good product and you'll uh, you'll help the show. Again, that's casper.com slash mental and use the offer code mental. I want to also uh, mention a festival that I'm going to be performing in, uh, actually doing a live version of the podcast at. Uh, it's called the In This Together Festival and it's November 13th at the Avalon in Hollywood from 4 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. And it's a podcast by me, um, the show Mortified, uh, music by Daniel Johnston. Uh, a lot of you have probably uh, heard of him. He's a uh, musician that suffers uh, from mental illness, schizophrenia, I believe. There's a documentary out about him. He lives in Austin. And uh, more to be added. But the In This Together Festival is a one of a kind nonprofit mental health awareness event that features comedians, podcasters, and musicians who are known for their mental health advocacy, authenticity, and vulnerability. Uh, we respectfully celebrate those who have struggled with mental illness and adversity. Uh, We're hosting a support group room in the upstairs of the Avalon venue that is available to all festival goers and to the public. This is a safe place where anyone can go to find support and resources in a support group setting with sessions being held throughout the duration of the festival. Tickets are on sale now at uh, InThisTogetherFestival.com or ittfest.com, and again, I'll put both of those, both of those links uh, under the show notes of uh, of this episode. And uh, I've not nailed down a guest yet for that, but when I do, I'll I'll let you know who that is. Um, before I get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can support us uh, financially by going to the website metalpod.com and uh, making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It may not seem like a lot to you, but it means the world to me and it helps keep this thing uh, running. Um, You can also uh, shop at Amazon by entering through the Uh, logo on our website, the Amazon logo, and then they'll give us a small percentage of your purchase and uh, it doesn't make the price of what you're buying any more expensive. Uh, You can also uh, support us non-financially, giving us a good ratings on iTunes, writing something nice about us, and uh, spreading the word about the podcast through social media. Those are all ways that you can give back. And hey, if you are stuck in your bed right now, with a bucket of ice cream and a tear-stained pillow, you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and you be you. And you know what? I give you permission to shit yourself. I give you permission to shit yourself and feel no shame and actually shit yourself and enjoy that fleeting warmth that shitting yourself gives you. It's really... Shitting yourself is like a surprise party that turns bad quickly let's get to some some stuff this is an email I got from Josh uh and he writes um, he writes some really nice stuff about the podcast and he writes um think of addiction as a symptom of Uh, depression and anxiety, not a disease as we are told to believe. Uh, Through my experience with others and my own addiction, I sadly think we are sold a bunch of stuff to make money, sort of like buying a real cure to profit from less effective treatments. Yes, a lot of people are helped from the treatment we use now, thankfully, but not addressing the real problems leaves those unable to cope or get better, feel as though they are less than or failures. Uh, The addiction, Addiction stemming from depression and anxiety makes a lot more sense than the the disease theory, I think. To hear you say you can't begin to treat depression without treating the addiction is upsetting when I've seen the opposite be true countless times. If given the chance, I think science would agree that with a decline in depression, the level of addiction would fall dramatically. We are led to believe the opposite is true and it can be very damaging. Something to chew on, Um, Josh. And I wrote, uh, thank you for your thoughts, Josh. I believe that depression and anxiety can increase the intensity to self-medicate, but addiction can only be in remission based on emotional and spiritual health, and treating depression and anxiety would be part of that. There's a selfishness, a hypersensitivity, and an emotional immaturity at the heart of addiction that is not chemical. And at the turn of the last century, before 12 Steps was even invented, it was something that doctors all agreed on uh, doctors that dealt uh, with alcoholics so that's my two cents but thank you for, for sharing that and uh, who knows who knows where the real, uh, the real truth is Gary Busey does this is a struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by Polly Go Fuck Yourself I'm a fan already about her depression she writes uh, the will to do anything even use the bathroom is gone and I just want to be still forever we just addressed you 40 seconds ago. Uh, And sadly, Polly, you're probably feeling the chill of your own feces. (laughs) Again, it's late. I apologize. And uh, I'm going to channel Jimmy Pardo here for a minute. The chill of your own feces, a fantastic 80s pop band out of Germany. About her ADD, always thinking of new hobbies to take up while never keeping up with my current projects. About her OCD, this random stack of papers is in is in order, and if you touch it, I will have to bite you. Uh, compulsive behaviors, I have to touch things that I like, even if it's glass and probably breakable uh, or a shirt someone is wearing, I need to touch it. Uh, about her PTSD, sometimes I still feel carpet on my bare back and I hate it. God, that has got to be so awful. I'm so sorry. But being a sex crime victim, I think every man wants me and it terrifies me. Um, yeah. Do you, I, I, I wonder if people that cat call women had any idea that beyond the fact that it's just fucking rude and, um, piggish, that if they were aware that that could also be the case with some people, they would not do that. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to get really frustrated to get truly mad at people that are unconscious um because i I believe most people are decent, and the ones that we think are quote unquote bad are more than anything just unconscious but maybe i'm maybe I'm just uh what's what do you call it uh ish oh god I'm tired snapshot from her life. I was supposed to call three different people to get my insurance figured out so I can restart therapy and get back on anxiety meds. But phone calls make me anxious. And after working with the public all this week and the, and last, this week and last, the most I could do today was get a shower and change. I couldn't even go downstairs to eat with my family. I felt so drained, but I was supposed to make these calls weeks ago and every day the anxiety surrounding them gets worse. Please ask somebody to help you. This is, this is where people get to express that they love you. This is a chance for you to deepen your, your intimacy with other people by saying, I am really struggling. Can you help me with this? Could you help make some phone calls for me? Could you? Just a thought. Just a thought. Gigglebox shares an awfulsome survey. For many years, I've struggled with my weight and depression and anxiety. Five years ago, after a prolonged and undiagnosed bout of depression, I called off my wedding to my emotionally abusive fiance. I got to disagree. I think normally what you want to do with somebody who's emotionally abusive is you just move it back. Actually, a really good thing would just be move it back one week at a time forever be a good way to get back at him. I moved home with my parents to, quote, lick my wounds and work on starting over. It felt like everyone in our small town was talking about me and my abruptly canceled, in their eyes anyway, wedding. At the house alone one day while the air conditioner service guy was working on repairs, um, uh, we talked while he worked and I wound up telling him what had transpired, and why I was back in my parents' home at 30 years old. He was encouraging and kind and made me feel so much better that day. Until the end of our conversation when he concluded with, Don't forget now, big girls need love too. Oh, some Crazy cat. Writes about her love addiction. I love anyone who needs me. I co- I compromise my soul to be needed. And the crazier the person, the more attractive they become. About her anger issues. If I could stop punching and throwing things, I could save so much money. And by the way, I don't think we have any uh, shame and secret surveys in uh, in the group tonight. We have one that's kind of similar to, to it, but... Um, There's certain weeks I just feel like I need a break. Um, And we call that self-care. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by that weird guy rocking in the corner. Um, He's a trans male. And he writes, when I was 13, I came out to my parents as a lesbian. I'm actually a trans man, but at the time I didn't realize that was a thing. There were a lot of tears from both my parents and I. And then my mom decided that I was too young to know my sexuality. And because I used to mimic people when I was little, she thought that maybe I was pretending to come out because of something I had seen on television. She made me call the other people that I had come out to, a couple of friends, and tell them that I had made it up. Then my parents rented Boat Trip, which is a movie about two straight guys who wind up on a gay cruise ship. And we watched it as a family as though the previous hour Hadn't just happened. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Sometimes you just, you don't even have, you cannot make it up. Uh, This was filled out by maybe my new favorite name. Why can a parking ticket be validated, but I can't? And she writes about her anxiety all day, every day. Why are you talking to me? Are you being fake? Why are you smiling? Is it a pity smile? I need frequent flyer miles for my brain. Uh, and I wanted to read her uh, struggle in a sentence with this other one back to back. You know, I've shared before that there's this kind of beautiful synchronicity that happens with the survey sometimes where it will almost, almost be like twin surveys. Um, in the same week. And uh, so this is the first one. And snapshot from her life, she writes, um, and I would love, by the way, if you uh, and the next survey I read would email me so that I can put you, if you both hear this, in touch with each other, because I think you might find comfort in connecting to each other. Or one of you is going to kill the other and I'll go to jail for it. Either way, something's going to happen. Snapshot from her life. Given up for adoption when I was nine months old because my, quote, mother was in a metal facility and told authorities if her kids were not taken from the home when she got out, she would kill them. Myself and two other sisters were then put in foster homes and separated until adulthood. We were all adopted into three different families. Long story short, the family I was adopted into were crazy lunatics that beat me, verbally assaulted me, alcoholics that fought with each other constantly. The, quote, mother that adopted me hated me and made sure I knew it constantly. I still have a fear of looking in the mirror because she made sure to let me know I am not worth looking at. So some people got one set of craptastic parents. I got two, two sets of parents that hated me. Makes me feel lovely, really. Insert eye roll. And then this other one is uh, from uh, Mommy Drearest. And and by the way, they're both females uh, in their 30s and she writes about her depression. My depression feels like I'm wearing a sign that says, weird and sad, save yourself and stay away. Snapshot from her life. I just spent hours Googling depression therapy, even though I've already spent hours, maybe days Googling it before. I've wept a couple of times today. First, when I had read a story about a father who told his son he was proud of him. It filled me with jealousy, shame, and mourning. When your parents aren't in your life, you know you'll never hear those words. Others are so lucky. Then I wept again when I realized I haven't been able to say the words "mom" or "dad" since I was nine years old, when I was put in a foster care. Put in foster care. This led to a memory. I asked my adoptive aunt if I could call her mom uh, when I was twelve, and she didn't seem to like the idea. I think she hoped my family would be reunited and didn't want to take those terms from my parents. Fortunately, my family never reunited and it really is a good thing. But I still remember feeling rejected and unwanted when my aunt didn't want me to call her mom. I needed to call her mom. But when an aunt adopts you, I guess it's hard to change terms. It makes me feel like she can never makes me feel like she never intended to raise me, like it was supposed to be temporary until my parents were capable of raising me. I fantasize a lot about being born to a different family or being adopted by a family who wanted to be my, quote, mom and, quote, dad. I believe I'd feel different about myself and have better relationships or at least feel wanted. Also, at times, I obsess over stories about the one who overcame the odds, people. People who had shit childhoods but turned their pain into a mission to help others, who became successful in one way or another. In a masochistic way, it validates my belief that I'm crap because I'm over 30 and still struggling to be happy and successful. It also feeds the victim in me, which says those people, unlike me, had good people in their lives that saw them through. I'm jealous through and through. Thank you both for, for sharing that, and I and I hope I'm able to uh, to connect you guys, and that there isn't a murder. This is a happy moment filled out by thighs and sarcasm. Um. She writes, I just got rejected from my top choice grad school program. I can't afford any other programs and the wedding and moving plans I'd made with my fiance are all thrown into question now. I feel like a total and utter failure. I eat a rather potent pot brownie given to me by a friend a week prior and get way too stoned to deal with all the conflicting feelings inside me. My fiance gets home from work and I'm a blubbering mess. Without any real conversation, we walk down the street to a burger and fries joint we frequent sometimes. Still pretty high, I plop down in an open seat, stewing in my own misery. A few moments later, my fiancé places a large chocolate shake in front of me and gestures to one of the big screen TVs across from us. Professional wrestling is on. One of our favorite, quote, wrestlers is attacking another with a chair. I start laughing so hard that my eyes tear up again. I feel absurd, conflicted, and overwhelmed, but everything is going to be okay. I love it. Thank you for that. Uh, Nutshell writes about his depression. No, I don't care what we have for dinner. It's not like I will really taste it anyway. That's so true, man. When the depression, when that gray fog sets in, it just sucks. What is special about everything out of everything. This is an email I got from Ken Douglas and he writes, "Hi dear, how are you doing? My name is Ken Douglas from Illinois, Chicago, United States of America and currently working as an interior designer here in Nottingham, United Kingdom." I don't know if he knows that I am from uh Illinois, Chicago, United States of America, Earth, um Milky Way, but this is really uh, I got to think that it's it's not just a coincidence that this was meant to be. And I used to watch the show My Three Sons and I think their last name was Douglas. So I got to think this is a sign. Anyway, continuing. I am searching for a serious relationship, a life partner, someone who is honest, caring, and who understands what relationship and marriage is all about. I promise to treat you like an angel as the second half of my very existence. Kenneth, I have many concerns. And I'm calling you Kenneth because I feel like we're now at the stage of our relationship where formality is really the only way for us to explore intimacy. I hate to break it to you, but I'm in a serious relationship. I have a life partner. And... I don't know if I would say that she treats me like an angel but I am in the second half of my existence um, unless I'm going to live to be 106. Um, So I, I don't know how to let Kenneth down but he writes I will be waiting for your response for further introduction and kindly write to my email with love Ken. I love how he At the end, he just threw the formality out the window. You know why? Because that's Ken. That's just how Ken is. I'm really torn. This is almost like Sophie's Choice. Um, I was hoping something was going to come (laughs) to me. It was really a pretty good bit until I couldn't finish it. I—it's like Sophie's Choice, except blank, just blank. Godspeed, Kenneth, or Ken, as, as I'm now calling you. Uh, slug nuts writes about his ADD, I am just on the precipice of a life-altering epiphany that could provide much-needed relief from an anguished past when a ladybug walks on my computer screen and I wonder about the elegance of life before I realize I am daydreaming at work again. That is poetic. That is just a little poem about his ptsd the movement of someone as small as a flying bird's shadow in my peripheral vision can jolt me back to the instant that i was being beaten helplessly oh that is so dark i'm so sorry so sorry um About being an abuser, I almost am. My first instincts with my child is to lash out on him like my parents did to me. But I stop myself, swallow my pride, and do that right thing and pretend like I am interested in his pixelated video game. And I'm not saying this as hype, uh, but that is a hero right there. Somebody who swallows that burning instinct to continue the cycle of abuse and doesn't. I mean that is a fight, and that is a that is a fucking hero. And most people, you know, people aren't given awards for that. People aren't recognized for that. But people who have never, you know, been beaten like he has or whatever it was that was that was done to him, um, probably never have an appreciation for what. How intense that battle is in him every fucking day. You know, the him, the 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 rape victim that gets triggered by a smell, a song, somebody's first name, a street, uh, a time of day, a, a season, a color, a uh, snapshot from his life, choosing between cutting my mother off and letting her have a relationship with my son. She has become a better person and is a good grandma, but she still denies all of the horrible things she let happen to me. I I know you don't care about my advice, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Set a boundary with her that that is not, and don't bring it up. Don't keep going to that dry well expecting water. Um, Say that this is an area of my life that we can't agree on and it causes me stress when It comes up, so can we please just not talk about this because I want to enjoy my time with you. And then stab her in the throat and run. Plea to Canada. Where I'll be waiting for you because I've introduced uh, two women who I thought were going to get along. and One of them wind up uh, killing the other one. But here's the good news. Ken Douglas is going to join us and we're going to have a fucking sweet three-way. That's right. That's how I'm going to have my first uh, gay experience in Canada with two guys. Because isn't that how you should... If you're going to do it, let's do it. Lay down a little, nice little bed of maple syrup and whatever other Canadian stereotypes I can think of. Turn on uh, you know, hockey night in Canada and I'll try to try to blow my wad just as Don Cherry says something that pisses everybody off there's a good chance i'm going to rewind this whole episode to the beginning this is an awful moment filled out by the montvale coat guy i don't know what any of that means but i'm a fan he writes, one dreary late March day in 2011, I sat down in my shitty apartment and started to seriously consider an early exit strategy. Nothing in the last two day, two years was working for me. I was deeply depressed, suffering from undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and checking out seemed to be the only option. I began to draft a note, saying goodbye and wondering where the best place they could find me, when I looked down and my beagle ruby was staring back at me with a concerned look. I stopped for one second thinking I would really miss my dog, my family, and most of all, I'd never see another episode of the professional wrestling mistake series known as Botchamania. Amazingly, that was the one thing that kept me going. Five years later, I'm alive and happy. Remember, folks, sometimes it's the little things. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch Botchamania and do not let Ruby know that. Uh, she was topped by a wrestling show. Got to take a drink of water. Carl writes about his uh, depression. A sieve distilling and magnifying the worst possible interpretation of reality. That is so true. Snapshot from his life. In my parents' basement undershowered and certain that I am the most pitiful person to have ever passed the Minnesota bar exam. That is one of the most, uh, beautiful fucked up and original sentences ever typed. You've introduced me to the word undershowered. I'm so putting that in, in my pocket and pretending I came up with it. And, uh, Carl, again, I don't want it it to sound cheap, but I'm a fan. Uh, This is from the Babysitter Survey, and this was, I wanted to read this and the next um, uh, piece back to back, because, you know, one of the things that I, there's probably no need to explain this but in my fucked up brain, I'm always anticipating a portion of the audience out there waiting to pounce on me and questions, question decisions that I make. And I know that's probably not the case. And even if it does, it's their issues, not mine. But in healing from the stuff that I went through in my childhood, my eyes have really become opened to. How narrow the view of what female sexuality looks like, both healthy and unhealthy, and especially in between. And I think these two surveys um, epitomize the things that um, the average person isn't aware of. Listeners to this show, that's not the case. You're aware that things like this happen, but um, I guess I, I'm afraid that you're, you uh, are going to say, oh my God, here he is with this you know, fucking old chestnut. Anyways, this is a babysitter survey filled out by um, Sad Saggy Titties. I mean, how do I not read that survey? Uh, she writes... At about 10, maybe 12 years old, I was asked to sit with my two-year-old neighbor boy until his dad came to pick him up. Uh, the parents were in the midst of a messy breakup and the mother didn't want to see the dad. So we were sitting on the front steps waiting and it was only going to be about 15 minutes. I knew that, quote, Ben had on a diaper. His mother had told me that before she left. It was to be easy money, no dirty diapers, and just a few minutes hanging with the kiddo. Anyway, I decided I should check his diaper, and when I touched the front to feel if it was wet, his tiny pecker moved. I felt it through the diaper, and it excited me. I had no clue as to what it meant, but I wanted to explore it some more. So I laid Ben down and unhooked his diaper to check out his tiny pecker. I never touched it with my bare hands. I used the wipes, but it excited me thoroughly. Uh thoroughly uh at this time i had been masturbating for over a year but still didn't know that was sexual uh raised in a catholic closet of a household just that one incident but i worry that i scarred ben in some way uh i never told anyone how do i feel remembering it uh some shame but i was cure i was a curious clueless kid and i can forgive myself i'm glad that you can forgive yourself because you were a kid and um do you feel any damage was done? I wonder about that, but I also think a two-year-old having his diaper changed probably didn't notice. I, I can't imagine that that he would have unless the way you were touching him was overtly um, uh, sexual. I mean, to me, there's, there's kind of... Um, there's uh, curiosity, inappropriate curiosity and inappropriate um, sexual intent and all kind of... You know, continuum with all kinds of uh, you know in between, and I see yours very much on the the curious range. But given that you were a child, even if it wasn't, you should still forgive your forgive yourself what you have, and I'm glad. Anyway, uh, as a parent, uh, has your experience influenced how you view? your children being babysat. My kids are grown and I have two grandkids, but I did worry when my boys were little. I raised them to tell if things were weird or uncomfortable. I did find out that my boys were molested at their dad's house, which threw me into a depression. I tried my hardest to protect them and they were still messed with. I'm so sorry that that happened. and she was the victim of sexual, uh, abuse and she never reported it because I, the, one of the reasons why I asked that question is because if the person filling the babysitter survey out, um, did something, um, I am always curious to know if anything had happened to them as, a, as a child. And then the second one is, um, an email that I got from Andrea in, uh, in Colorado And she writes, um, I loved this week's show and wanted to write in to tell you, first of all, you handled the survey about the gal pleasuring herself with other people's babies just fine. Um, There was a survey I read about a woman who um, was breastfeeding another person's baby and she uh, was masturbating. And um, I'm not going to recap the whole survey or how it was dealt with, but that triggered, uh, Andrea to write this, um, email. She writes, uh, I don't think there's a standard way to handle this, but as a mom who breastfed two children for about 10 months each, I have a perspective on it and feel comfortable sharing it with you. Now, don't get me wrong. Grabbing someone else's baby and sticking them on your nipple to get off is not okay. But as an abuse survivor, I understand the listener's compulsion to do so. Hopefully, you aren't disgusted by what I'm going to tell you. Gee, there goes my survivor guilt, everyone judges me button. But I think it might help you understand something you probably have very little knowledge of. One of the things breastfeeding women never talk about because it is societally oppressed and judged is that it feels really good. Um, Think about it. You have someone sucking on your nipples constantly. My son was one of those babies that nursed for 12 hours a day in the first few months. Now, it's not that you are laying or sitting there writhing in ecstasy and can't wait to get your nipple in their mouth, but just like you can have an orgasm during rape or molestation, sometimes without even trying, nursing your baby gets you off. Then there is a huge amount of shame and guilt, especially for abuse survivors, because you feel like you have just molested your baby because a natural thing caused your body to have a physical response. I just thought it was important for you to understand this, not necessarily to discuss it on the podcast, although if you did, I bet a lot of moms who experienced this would be grateful to know they aren't monsters. When I was ner- a nursing mom, I didn't actively try to pleasure myself, but occasionally my body responded to the nipple stimulation and I had an orgasm. The first time it happened, I was racked with guilt and felt terrible, but fortunately I had people to talk to about it and read some books which helped me understand that this physiological response was not bad, dirty, or quote, my fault. It didn't happen that many times, but I often felt some stimulation in my nether regions during nursing, but without having an orgasm. I can't prove my theory, but I do wonder if it isn't some sort of um, biological imperative to encourage women to want sex after having a baby. The exhaustion and hormonal changes, as well as the physical bomb that goes off with childbirth, can really put a damper on your libido. Maybe it's nature's way of getting our bodies ready for sex again. So now you know the dirty little secret breastfeeding women never talk about other than with their doctor or lactation consultant. I hope I didn't totally gross you out. Big hugs, Andrea. Uh, did not gross me out at all. This is uh, learning things like this is the reason I love doing the podcast. I, as you know, I am endlessly fascinated with, um, people, our brains, how we process things, our sexuality. So that's, you know, thank you. And I don't know if I've ever read anything that I would say grossed me out on, on the podcast. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot of things that I think that's not my thing. I wouldn't do that. But I, I don't know if I've ever heard anything where where I'm like, um, "Oh, I gotta go! I gotta go throw up!" I've, I've read a lot of stuff that makes me sad, um, but stuff that makes me angry, stuff that makes me slow dance. I've had the time of my life. Where's the rewind button? Ace writes about his depression. You never believe you're good enough at anything. Everyone is lying to you because they know you're not capable of handling the truth. Oh, that is a good one. What is anxiety? I dread the night where all of the positive work I've done throughout the day is washed away with the anxiety of having to do it all over again. Poetry. Thank you, Ace. Ace. Gigglebox writes about her anxiety. Like like I keep all of my potential and capability bottled up because putting to use and doing something great might actually make someone notice me. Or I might fail despite my potential and capability and then they'd all notice what a fuck up I am. Better for my potential, capability, and I to just hide away watching Netflix instead. Oh my God. You guys are amazing. About living with an abuser, living with my emotionally abusive parents at 35 is like the movie Big in Reverse, being stuck in my childhood instead of stuck in adulthood like Tom Hanks, and unable to get out because their abuse keeps me from building the strength and confidence to get independent and leave their home. Snapshot from her life, my mother telling me uh, while I have a wonderful committed boyfriend that I'll never get a man if I don't lose weight get out of there oh my god get out of there and the next time your mom says that maybe say something like and you'll never get close to your daughter if you don't stop trying to control her Hmm. or stick her in the throat with a knife and join us in canada because i gotta be honest by that point i'll be like i'm ready to be straight again who knows i've never had i've never had a uh a consensual uh, gay experience I don't know would, would you I was 10 or 11 and he was 15 and, and I stopped it after like 30 seconds but um, is that considered a I don't know I've derailed it all this is a struggle in a sentence uh, survey filled out by uh, shit muncher 2000 <laughs> and uh they are agender uh 15 and a half years old about to turn 16 and they write uh, gender dysphoria is like walking through a fun house each mirror reflecting a different version of yourself until till you're not even sure who you are anymore and then any comments that make the podcast better um i'm in therapy and he he writes because of the podcast i'm in therapy um I, you know, at first I edited that out because I didn't want to seem like I was full of myself, but I think that's probably one of the last things uh, regular listeners would say uh, about me. People in my regular life might, uh, might say that, but um, anyways, he writes, uh, thank you for doing this, Paul, because of you, I'm in therapy, I'm getting help, and I'm so fucking glad that in a month I will be able to check the age 16 to 19 box when I fill out surveys. I never thought I'd make it this far. Also, I'm a big fan of DJ voice Paul. I think he should definitely narrate a serial killer documentary or something. He is, he would be a good, uh, a good narrator, but he is impossible to work with because he wants to bring everything back to Bachman Turner overdrive and producers just do not understand that. And I know I'm not going to do his voice right now because I'm tired as if everybody's dying to hear it. This was filled out by uh, Kaki, and she writes, um, Hey, Paul, I heard myself on your podcast today. Well, myself from 20 years ago. Little butterfly survey that you read at the end of the most recent episode, number 289, is me from 2002, or so me as it doesn't make much difference. That was the year I started into my deepest depression, leading to two years of unemployment and a kind of passive suicide. Passive in that I didn't kill myself, obviously. I just stopped living professionally, socially, spiritually, etc. I'll skip the details and get to the point. Your validation of little, Little Butterfly was so great, and your advice to her about setting limits with her mom were so spot on. My mom was never narcissistic, but we had a similar relationship with regard to food and weight. And if I remember correctly, a little butterfly's mom was very, very controlling about um, uh, her weight. And um, anyway, and I had a similar experience in looking at younger pictures of myself at 12 in a swimsuit swimsuit, uh, for me and realizing that I was not fat back then. I wanted to add a recommendation that little, little Butterfly seek one-on-one counseling in addition to a support group that can really help to reprocess older hurts with an adult perspective. A fantastic book that addresses this issue with mothers and daughters and boundaries in their talk is called You're Wearing That? question uh, mark And it's available on Amazon. I think it was really lucky for me that my mother was into self-help books. And I was a few years into my boundary setting with her when I read the book and shared it with her. It really helped her to understand how her critique of my physical appearance could be so painful to me when she felt her intentions were good. It helped us be more clear in our talk so that we don't accidentally cause each other uh, pain. One interesting note, about eight years after I set boundaries with my mom, she started to work on herself and set boundaries with her own brothers. It really helped to make her a happier person she's also refocused her energies on charity and friends instead of her children if she offers advice or help we are now free to accept or decline without the emotional fallout instead of being guilted about hurting her feelings she turns her attention to the lgbt teens and her charity work who need a maternal figure to give them validation love and acceptance oh my god so beautiful and that and that's such Uh, that's such a beautiful email to read too because i i often worry that this show is just a boxing match of us punching parents for things they did in the past um which is not my intent my intent is you know much broader than that it's to for us to get out of bed and not hate ourselves um this is a happy moment from uh, Bipolar Mama, PhD, and let's see. oh yeah, and this is our, our, our final thing. This is a happy moment, and she writes, first a bit of background. When I became a mother a few years ago, my mind came apart. I had struggled privately for more than two decades at that point, but never gotten help. I always counted on the up that reliably followed periods of down thinking mistakenly that its consistency meant I was somehow okay despite my suffering. Postpartum, however, the depression was worse than it had ever been and it just wouldn't lift. Complete apathy, inability to get up off the couch or leave the house, hopelessness, physical pain, total abandonment of personal hygiene and housekeeping, etc. After almost two years of this horrible illness, I relented and went to therapy for the first time, which quickly led to psychiatric care. Turns out I'm bipolar and giving birth finally pushed me off the deep end. Anyway, I've been in therapy for a year and a half now and on meds for a year and things are still touch and go, but I'm a lot better. So that's the background. Here's the happy moment. A few months ago, my husband and I were getting our daughter ready for bed. They were in her bedroom and I was in the room, uh, in the next room over. I heard my husband pick up my daughter's pajamas and say, ooh, mama wash these. I was overcome by the most profound and intense sense of thankfulness that i had washed her pajamas that i can wash her pajamas to have been stripped for so long of my basic abilities whittled me to some core essence i was brought down to my hands and knees and there i found a bareness a barrenness that was for a long time utterly bleak but that over time became cleansing and fortifying. It has, in the end, I believe, led me to a new simplicity and strength. It's as if the gratitude I felt at having washed my daughter's pajamas is depression's antibody. I wouldn't have it if not for the experience of that terrible sickness. But having it, I am better equipped to fight in the future. You guys are just amazing just amazing I've been doing this show for 5 years and I have never not felt great when I finished an episode I've not I've never not felt like a a fullness a wholeness in my soul I think that's why I love to to finish with these happy moments because if I finished on some fucking half-assed riff that I bailed on. I <laughs> might not still be doing this. So, what I'm saying is, I'm shit and you're gold. How's that? How's that for nuanced thinking? <laughs> anyway, I hope you loved the uh, interview with Maddie. I hope you liked the surveys. I hope if you're struggling, you you get up the courage to say, I need help. Pick up that phone, call that friend. Do something because we can't expect people to read our minds. And um, life is just so much better being vulnerable and asking for help and letting other people in and learning how to let the ones who aren't safe in. Um, Learning how to not let them in. I don't know what I just said. I'm so fucking tired. I'm going to blame it on Herbert and his butthole. I can't wait for those t-shirts anyway. I digress. Um, Just remember you're not alone. You never have been. You never have to be. There's always been people around you that feel like you do, but you're never going to know it unless both of you talk about it. And um, thanks for listening.